All right. Well, it's about that time. How's everyone feeling this uh, this morning? Great. Good. Good. Strong. Strong. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Okay, well, uh, let's start with a word of prayer, and then we will get going on our second to the last uh, topic of this series. It's kind of exciting. All right, let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we come before you thankful that we can call you Father. Thankful that you are a Father that provides, Father that loves. Lord, we uh, even ask for your um, graciousness to us as we uh, try to understand you better during this hour. We ask for your uh, the help of your Spirit as we uh, think on these things, and that even as we go into the service today, that your Spirit will work hard on our hearts, and that we will bow our heads before your Word. We ask these things in your Son's name. Amen. Amen. Okay. Well, uh, today uh, we're going to talk about the person of the Father. That means we're going to, it's the who, the who of the Father. Who is the Father? Uh, Next week, we're going to talk about the Father's work. What does he do? Um, And these two weeks are going to be a little tough on us, I think, because you cannot talk about the Father without talking about fatherhood. Um... And that is a challenge um, to all the men in the room, um, because uh, what we're going to find is this isn't uh, a topic just about God the Father. It's not just about, isn't it interesting that God the Father is this way? Uh, It's good to get a little clarity on who God the Father is and whatnot, but it's actually quite a challenge to us. Um, because what we're going to find out is uh, God created the world in a certain way that even studying who he is as father challenges us in our families. So if you would, turn to Ephesians 3, 14, and 15, maybe even 16. Ephesians chapter 3. We're going to start with verse 14. Paul is speaking to the Ephesians. Um, The challenge to the Ephesians, when you read chapter 1, Paul states why he's writing this, and it's so that they might have knowledge. And this knowledge might change them. And um, towards the end, it kind of starts off very, I don't want to say ethereal, but it's, it's very otherworldly. It starts, uh, he starts talking in Ephesians about what God was doing before the world even began. And he ends with talking about uh, how we're supposed to have our families, how wives are supposed to submit, men are supposed to lead, children are supposed to follow... 
and uh, even talking about servants, down to the nitty-gritty of that, down to the fact that we're not even really fighting a war amongst people, we're fighting a war against principalities and darkness and demons and the devil, all those things that aren't very intellectual, right? Sound kind of uh, strange to the uh, people in academia. And right in the middle of the whole thing, he says this, verse 14 of chapter 3, he says, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derive its name, that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with power through the Holy Spirit in the inner man. <clears throat> so there's a few things I want us to look at here. First reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. What we uh, find uh, from this simple couple verses is that the first person of the Trinity, remember we talk about the persons as the first person being the Father, second person being the Son, third person being the Holy Spirit, all of which are equally God. But what we find here is the first person of the Trinity is as much Father as he is God. Right? Uh, God is not a mixture of things. The thing that makes the Trinity difficult for humans to understand is that God is all of these things without mixture. Okay? So, it would be easy for us to understand God as a single person who wears several hats, right? Today I'm going to wear my father hat. Next I'm going to wear my son hat, right? Which would then make him more God than he is the hats he's wearing. Does that make sense? Um, but that's not what's happening. We have three distinct persons. And these three distinct persons are all... Fully God. Very God, a very God, if we can put that And the first person of the Trinity is Father. Um, and what we find is that we even have a description in this verse in relation to the Father, which is, the second thing we find here is we are described as being his household. Okay. If we are deriving our name from our Father, then we are described as people within the Father's household. And we're going to find what this, what this means in just a minute. So as a Father, He is the Father who, the next blank there, is names. He is the namer. Right? Our names are derived from our Father. All the families in heaven and in earth derive their name from their Father. This is fatherly activity. The one who names his family. 
And as you saw in the next verse in 16, he provides like a father. It is through the father that he grants us, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened. And how does he do that? He uses the spirit to do that. To be strengthened. So he's a father that names, he's a father that provides, and we are in his household. So this is where this is what all this means. This is what I'm trying to get at here. And that's the last uh, blank of that section. Um, and we talked about this before. The only way we understand ourselves is in a context, right? Um, like right now, you understand yourself in the context of Sunday school. And in that <clears throat> Sunday school, you know, what we're really talking about is a building in our church that's on earth, right? Maybe I jumped too far. That's in South Carolina. That's on earth. <laughs> and this is our environment. Our environment is this amazing place, right, that has been created just for humans to thrive, subdue, and rule over earth. And we know that earth was made by God. We have this whole environment context so that everything else can make sense to us. When you think of God before any creation occurred, how do you think of God? Isn't it true, if we're honest with ourselves, when we think, especially when Ephesians starts with God before the foundation of the world, God's there. Isn't it true, we talked about this before, we kind of think of God in space somewhere, maybe floating. We can't imagine God outside of an environment. We put him in an environment. Does that make sense? And so we think, well, before the foundation of the world, God was kind of floating in this big, dark environment. And then he created the world within that environment. And we understand that environment is space. That is a false view of God. God does not have an environment. He is his environment. Am I making sense? I mean, hopefully I'm not making sense. Hopefully you're thinking, wow, that makes... I can't even imagine that. And that's correct. <laughs> right? That's right. Because we can't imagine a person existing in, its, in his own environment, that he is the environment. He doesn't need space to float in. So what we can't imagine is God outside of creation, because once we do that, all we would be able to understand is God is there without anything else there, and we don't know what that means. So why did I go into all that? Well, since we know God is his own environment, what's interesting about this verse is this verse names that environment that he lives in. What is the environment of the Trinity, do you think? Okay. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. When we talk about Father and Son, what are we saying? What, are we, what is that? 
Who said it? 20 points. Family. God's own environment is a familial environment. So God is his own environment, and the environment in which all creation gains its meaning is family. This is why, as Reformed people, when we see the Old Testament, we don't deny that there is a nation of Israel, but we do deny that that's what was important to God. Got this nation. Nation is very important. Got to keep this nation. When did God ever care about nation? Do you understand what I'm saying? The way we think of nation. We think of nation as, you know, we think of America as this thing, right, that's holding all these different kinds of people together. When, in, uh, when God made his covenant with Abraham, the Hebrew, and I think good translations, translate that all what will be blessed? All nations will be blessed? What's the word there? All families will be blessed through him. Now why is that important? Because salvation, redeeming, God's people has always been identified as people that believe in him who have been transformed by him. That's his people. Right? And he did it through Abraham. And yes, they're a nation. I'm not denying the nation-ness. But even Paul says, who is the true Jew? What is a real Jew? Apparently, there was a point in which people were getting this confused in the Bible times. That the Jews were this nation of people. And Paul says, no, who is the true Jew? The one that's circumcised in the heart, right? And so what we see is that family becomes really um, a central focus of the environment which God created us to be in. Even the church is referred to and talked about as a family. Bride, groom. This is family speech, which I think cannot be separated from covenantal speech. So if, you, if the word covenant kind of sounds strange to you because no one ever really defines this kind of thing, you can think of it as family agreements. Um, so if that's our environment then that kind of talks, that gives us an idea of what we mean when we talk about Father. So we talk about some clarifications of the Father. Um, we understand the Father to be the first, that's your first blank there on that next part, He is the first person of the Trinity. Okay. So what we're not saying by that is the Father is more important or more God than the Son and the Spirit. We would never say that because it's simply not true. But the Son is not the Father, and the Spirit is not the Son or the Father. And the Father is not the Son, so what do we mean by that? I'm going to give you some, uh, some intellectual church history very briefly, and in a way that we all understand it so it doesn't sound too stupid. Um, 
There's this guy named Bart. It's spelled Barth, T-H, but apparently we're all supposed to say Bart. So uh, this guy named Bart came along and said, to really understand the Trinity, what it really is is a threefold repetition. So in the end, you kind of have God as really being one, but what he did is he replicated himself identically three times. One is the Father, one is the Son, and one is the Holy Spirit. Does that make, does, if, it, if you're saying that doesn't make sense, that's right. <laughs> that's good. That's okay. But that's what he came up with. And I, I think, my theory, is that there are some people, in the, even the conservative world, that are kind of leaning, slouching back towards, uh, what's the word? What was that? Bart Bartianism, there it is, yes. Bartian, yeah, if you don't have that Tianism, it's, uh, it doesn't count. Uh, so, yeah. So I think they're, um, they're starting to get back to that, and I think some of that has to do with the pressure that is put on men of power who have powerful wives. Uh, they eventually get into power, right, um, in big denominations, and um, they find really Christian ways of uh, making their wives happy. Um, and I know it's probably should, there should be uh, some better theological reason than that, but I think that's basically what it boils down to. Um, and I think if we make the Trinity a threefold repetition, there is a way to say, you see, marriage is really just a twofold repetition. We just um, there isn't a real hierarchy there. It's not real. It's, it's something else. Um, and so really behind it all, there is an equality that really has no roles, but there is, um, but we play this game. Does that make sense? And what I would like to submit to you is that the Father, and this is your next blank, he has never become the Father. The Father never becomes the Father. Father, you didn't have this threefold, identical three persons where there's no real distinction. Then when they created this, they say, okay, we're going to now take on roles. So uh, I'll be the first person of the Trinity, and they'll call me Father. You'll be the second. They'll call you Son, and then we'll have you, the Spirit, and they'll call you the Spirit. And these will now become our roles as we become redeemers of the people. that makes sense? There is... No one will say that on a quiz. Do you understand what I'm saying? But what people are afraid to encounter is a God who never began being the Father, and a Son who never began being the Son, and the, a Spirit that never began being the Spirit, and you have this, this unity, yet differences, and you have to live with that, and that's exactly the very foundational relationship that never began. So what relationship never began? the relation between a father and a son. He is fatherly 
not because of creation. This is your second, or your third blank there. God did not start acting fatherly because creation came about. The father is fatherly because of the son. So as long as the son has been around, which is just as long as the father, he has been fatherly. Now, do we know what that means out into Trinity without creation? Not necessarily. We don't have, there isn't this great explanation in scripture that says, this is the way it was before creation. But we know this, how God acts to creation is never going to be foreign to himself. Okay? God did not start acting in a foreign way when creation came about, which means he is acting in a way that is like him. Does that make sense? So, um, this is a hard thing to understand. <coughs> I can uh, maybe explain it the way we explain scripture. Can God communicate his mind directly to us? Well, what would happen if God said, here's my mind, straight from me to you, what would happen to you? <laughs> yeah, you would be destroyed. <laughs> And you would be destroyed, and this is, this is what's interesting. You would be destroyed not because there's so much information coming into your mind. You would be destroyed because the minute that would attempt to occur, for you to have the mind of God, for your mind and God's mind to be identical, you would then become God, and that's impossible. Out of God's justice, you would die. Because he will not share his glory with another. So it's, you, you, you disintegrate for maybe different reasons than we even think, right? And this is something we have to deal with um, at my job, where we have people that are writing math textbooks that think 2 plus 2 equals 4 is some kind of peek into God's mind. Like we step over scripture and like 2 plus 2 equals 4 is somehow a replication of something that's identical of God's mind. Um, and uh, that is heresy. Well, for one, God doesn't think in inference, right? He doesn't need a two, and then a symbol, and then a two, another symbol, and then figure out what those two twos plus that and that symbol all means. He doesn't think like humans. So, he communicated to us in a way that we call condescension. He condescended to us so that we can understand. Now, here's the hard part to grasp. If he condescended to us, how can this be absolutely true and creaturely all at the same time? Well, it would take an act of God to be able to interpret himself in a way that's creaturely, that's not identical to his own mind, but in no way is, has any falsehood on, in it and is completely true. Only God would be able to do that. You would not be able to have any other mediator between God and man except for Christ, right? There would have to be real uh, rubber meeting the road. 
Because we say things like there's no other mediator between God and man except Christ. But when the rubber meets the road is that you're able to hold this up and say this is absolutely true creaturely as well. Yes? Absolutely. And because what they, what they want is, if I'm not getting identical knowledge, if, my, if the knowledge I'm getting is not identical to God's mind, then it can't be true. Well, the problem with that, of course, like we said, you try that, you're done. So that condescension has to be really supernatural condescension, right? It has to be something that remains fully true and fully creaturely all at the same time. What struck me uh, just a minute ago when we were talking about heaven, how God is, I mean, it, it seems to denote his will behind mm-hmm. how he condescends to us, right? Mm-hmm. You see that in the pattern of the church and how he lays that out with the nation of Israel. You see that uh, in his redemptive plan from the get go, uh, pointing out that Christ was the Word, the Word became flesh. And so you see that. And I'm reminded of that difficult passage in the Bible in Exodus where he relents. Mm-hmm. He says he relents, you know, and that, that, that seems to kind of kind of fly, you know, that language kind of flies in the face of what, why would God need to relent? Yeah. Right? But now I see that in the context of family, mm-hmm. right? The will of God with his family. Mm. So there was an appeal by Moses to to have God relent. Now whether or not that was truly in his nature or what yeah. is probably mysterious. Yeah. But the, the, the language there uh, is there for us to understand mm-hmm. his will behind it. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, what we don't want to do is look in scripture and when we see things like like relent or repented of making man, we say, well, it says that, but it doesn't really mean that. Well, does God change his mind in his essence? Well, no. But how does he work with humans? How is he condescending to us? It's a covenantal condescension. Um, and so we have, to, we have to be aware that this condescension is not a lie, right? It's not just this play that God does that isn't really real, but is real, but is a creaturely way for us to understand. Um, So he is fatherly not because of creation, but because of the Son, 
And he works through, that's your, your next one there, the Son and the Spirit. And he works through them. And that is fatherly activity. What is more fatherly than one that is managing and working through his family, his people? So the son does work through the will of the father. The spirit searches the father's mind, right? And reveals it to us. And so you have this, um, these workings, working outs of the will of the Father. That's fatherly activity. Um, which leads us to his covenantal attributes. Now, I, I call them covenantal attributes because these are attributes we see with him acting upon us. Okay? Uh, some of these attributes are absolutely part of who he is in what we call his essence, um, outside of creation. But this is also how he acts within creation. So as father, he holds authority. And then what we see in Matthew 28, 18, is he gives this authority to his son. Christ, as far as the father and son work in creation... Christ was able to have all authority because it was given by the Father. Okay? Think of the fatherly activity this is. Men, as we think of our sons, and we think of what it means to give authority to our sons, um, it's a... It's a humbling thing to think about. One day our sons will be fathers. And we are showing them the kind of authority that we are saying, this is the kind of authority you should have in your home. What are we showing them? Um, when, when the authority comes to them. Um, part of the training we give our sons is to give them authority over things in our home. Eventually you give them a car or let them use a car. All of that has something to do with slowly handing over authority. This is a fatherly activity that we mimic down here. As father, he is lawgiver and judge. Um, even Christ on earth keeps repeating over and over, not my will, but the Father's will, and that he was, that Christ was given authority to be judge. And one day, uh, the church will be given authority to judge angels. Think of that. I want you to notice this fatherly activity um, we're going to find towards the end of this study, I hope, uh, that this means something. This handing down of authority. His love. John 3.16. I hope we all know John 3.16. His love initiates redemption. This is something that we forget a lot about the Father, I think. 
that the thing that uh, describes the Father a lot throughout Scripture is his love for us. For God so loved the world that he gave, right, his only begotten Son. The initiation of the covenant that we are talking about when we talk about this covenant of redemption. What initiates this sacrificial act of the Father giving his Son for your sins? It's his love for you. I mean, that's a... Don't we... Don't we kind of think of, when we think of God's harshness, um, it's something that uh, has been brought out even, um, even recently. When we think about uh, David and the harshness that comes with that sin that uh, the father teaches his children, and he takes the life of the child. We think of that harshness. But think of where all that starts. It all starts with what initiates your very salvation, which is his love for you. Children think of fathers oftentimes as harsh because what they remember most is those harsh moments, right? David remembered that harsh moment when he laid on his face for hours upon hours, begging God to spare his child, and God said no. What is hard at those moments, and even after that moment, to keep remembering is, it all begins with this overwhelming love that initiates your very salvation. And young people forget that about even their earthly fathers. They remember those harsh moments. What they, don't re- they, what they don't remember is that all of this is initiated. Even in when, you know, as earthly fathers, we even sin in our harshness, and I understand that. But true fatherhood is initiated in love. And that last blank there under the covenantal attributes is his will is the source of the covenant of redemption. Jesus reminds us of this all throughout John. I have come not to do my own will, but the will of the Father. Not my will, but the will of the Father. This is hard to understand within a trinity who is one single God, yet is three persons at the same time. And in those three persons, the very thing that holds this whole covenant in place, where your redemption is made sure, is found in the will of the Father. The Father's will is what holds this redemption in place. Carried out by the Son and the Spirit. But, the, but Christ even said, I'm not here to even tell you something of my own accord. It's what the Father tells me, right? 
So in Ephesians 5, if I can close the circle. Ephesians 5 tells us, sums up between verses 1 and, let me see, uh, 1 and 21, I believe is the summary of what one through chapters 1 through 4 has been saying. And verses uh, Ephesians 5, 22 on to the end is the, is the practical application of all of that. So you get this deep doctrine. What is God doing before the foundation of the world? He's choosing you. There is a covenant in place that is from the will of the Father, carried out through the, through the works of the Son, made possible through the power of the Holy Spirit, all these deep theological issues come down to this. Therefore, verse 1 of chapter 5, therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. This is how you're supposed to love. This love is an imitation of Christ who is imitating whom? Who is the perfect image of the Father? Yes, Christ. According to Colossians 1 and, uh, and um, Hebrews 1, we have this perfect image. The perfect imaging of the Father is the Son. And now we're told to be imitators of God. So the single principle God designed man and designed man to do. So God created man to do something. He created you in such a way is what I'm trying to get across here. Um, if a bike is designed to move forward, then wheels have to be made. Part of the bike has to be wheels. Does that make sense? If the bike is meant to move forward and to be steered, then part of the bike needs to have handlebars. If the, part, if the purpose of the bike is to move forward, be steered, and be propelled by that which is on it, there needs to be pedals. So the whole bike has to be designed in such a way to do the thing it's supposed to do. What I'm telling you is throughout scripture, this idea of imitation, you are made to imitate your very brain structure, how God made your brain, how God made your soul, how God made your body is all designed for imitation so that you will imitate. To the point where even if you rebel against God and you say, I reject you, you don't stop imitating. You just imitate your father, the devil. Um, one thing that's hard for my students to understand when I teach them logic is you have never come up with an original idea. None of you are original. None of you are creative. All you can do is copy. A bunch of copiers. You know, you can, you know, you can put things together, right? Unicorns don't really exist, but you've seen a horn before and you've seen a horse before, right? You put them together, you have unicorn, right? 
A Pegasus doesn't exist, but you know what a horse looks like? You've seen wings. So you're not really creating, you're just borrowing a bunch of stuff you've already seen, you're smashing it together, and you think you're creative, but really what you did was you borrowed, because that's all our brains are able to do is borrow. Locke was wrong. We don't start with a clean slate. Uh, we borrow. We borrow, 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 borrow. And we don't start with a clean slate and stuff is put on it. Your brain, your thoughts are all made to borrow. So, the single thing God has designed us for and designed us to do is imitation. Christ, the perfect image of the Father, is to be imaged in verse 25. Verse 25, as we get to the application, right? You're first given in, uh, um, in verse 21 the general stance. What's the general stance? Uh, verse 20, always giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to God even the Father, and be subject to one another in, fear, in the fear of Christ. That's the general statement. Be subject to each other. You might ask yourself, well, what does that mean? Glad you asked. The rest of the chapter, right? <laughs> this is what it means to be subject to each other. Well, wives, you be subject to your husbands. Kids, be subject to your parents. Um, Servants, be subject to your masters. This is what it means to be subject to each other. Husbands, be subject to Christ. So, the idea that we get at the very bottom here is fathers reproduce themselves and cannot do anything else. We are made to replicate ourselves. This is the sobering thing for us as fathers, right? When we see the sin of our children, and this is the hard part because we get, I have, a, I have teenagers, I have toddlers. And I can tell you the thing that is the most frustrating is the sins that they copy from the father. Right? It disgusts you because, especially because You've seen what it's done to you, and you hate it. And now you see them doing it, and it fills you with rage. But we reproduce ourselves. And so, what are we reproducing? What is coming from us as fathers? I think one of the things that, as our church continues to grow, especially with this, with as many children as we have, uh, we fathers need to start bonding with each other, talking to each other, because we are reproducing ourselves, whether we like it or not. And what are we reproducing? Um, God made us this way. Because this is how God is. He has reproduced himself through the power of his spirit and the work of his son. And so how are we going to reproduce ourselves? What do we want to see? Uh, fathers are needy people. We need each other. 
So how are we going to continue forward as we see our children being replicated uh, from us? This is a challenge that, that I've been wrestling with since I looked at this lesson and something that um, I feel <laughs> like I've, uh, I've already failed so much I don't know how to uh, go back and fix it because you almost feel like if I fix it now I'm just a giant hypocrite, right? <laughs> but God has called us to be giant hypocrites and fix it. Where you go back to your family and you say, I've been doing it wrong for a long time. I know it looks like I'm a hypocrite now because now I'm trying to do it right, but that's better than trying to stay the course. Right? And uh, it, uh, it means a lot of problems. You uncover a lot of problems with your kids. You uncover a lot of problems with your wife because now she has to trust the guy that has been making mistakes this whole time. So let us pray for each other as we look at God the Father and hopefully be challenged by what a father is supposed to be. Um, let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we come to you humbled by your fatherhood. We are come before you humbled by what you have done for us as father. And we realize that we have fallen short as fathers. We pray for your, the work of your spirit to drive us to be better fathers, the work of the Son, that we might imitate him and his love for the church. And as we look at you, who has worked through his triune work, that we will look to imitate God and be God imitators, even though it is hard and it requires much of us. We pray for that, Lord, and we pray for your work in this church, work in us, and we ask these things in your Son's name, in whom all promises are yes and amen.